Russian composers such as Glinka and Tchaikovsky saw a resurgence in popularity in the 1920s and 30s. Their newfound popularity helped pave the way for the next generation of Russian composers and artists to be taken seriously by the European community. Find out more about these composers and the historical period that inspired them on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. In the 1930s, there was a large push to make Moscow the center of art and music, which then started a cultural struggle between modern European innovation and the folk traditions of the past. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Guild lecturer Dr. Naomi Purley takes a closer look into the history and music of the Soviet era. You just heard a few moments from the finale of Dmitry Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony. Shostakovich wrote the symphony at the height of World War II, while his hometown Leningrad, better known these days as St. Petersburg, was under siege by the Germans, the few residents who remained freezing and starving in the brutal Russian winter. The bombastic yet rich tone of Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony exemplifies the sound of the early Soviet Union, a period and a place with which Shostakovich is more closely associated than any other internationally renowned composer. Today we will be exploring opera in the Soviet Union with a special focus on the operas of Shostakovich. So what sets music composed in the Soviet Union apart from music composed in other countries in the mid-20th century? And why focus particularly on Shostakovich? Simply put, the Soviet Union was the only totalitarian regime in the early 20th century that managed to exert complete control over the arts, including music. It might be a truism that all music is political, but Soviet music takes that truism to a whole new level. So why use Shostakovich to tell the tale of music in the early Soviet Union? The musicologist Richard Taruskin stated it best when he wrote in the Oxford History of Western Music, quote, Shostakovich was the one composer wholly formed in the Soviet Union to achieve unquestionable world eminence. In that sense, his work was not only regarded, but was actively promoted by the regime 
as an emblem of Soviet cultural achievement and a vindication of the theory of socialist realism. Shostakovich was born in St. Petersburg in 1906, 11 years before the start of the Russian Revolution. In other words, he came of age during the revolution's early years, as the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, gradually consolidated their power across the vast expanses of the former Russian Empire. Following Lenin's death in 1924, Joseph Stalin slowly began to consolidate power, gradually molding the fledgling Soviet Union into an all-powerful totalitarian state that would eventually control virtually every aspect of artistic expression within its borders. But Shostakovich's early successes as a composer came before Stalin had tightened his grip on Soviet artists in the fairly freewheeling 1920s. He got his first taste of fame following the premiere of his first symphony in 1926, when he was only 19 years old. He had composed it as his graduation piece from the Leningrad Conservatory. The following year, in 1927, Shostakovich attended the first performance of Alban Berg's opera, Wozzeck, in Leningrad. Around the same time, Shostakovich began work on his first foray into the genre, his comic opera, The Nose. Despite the gulf between the two operas' subject matter, Wozzeck, a dark tragedy about the alienation of modern life, and The Nose, a bureaucratic farce, the musical similarities that lie beneath the work's surfaces suggest that Shostakovich was strongly influenced by Berg's opera. The Nose's libretto is based on the eponymous short story by the Russian author Nikolai Gogol. Even though Gogol wrote his story most of a century before the Russian Revolution, it seems tailor-made for the Soviet era, with its lampooning of pre-Soviet Russian society. A bureaucrat named Kovalyov wakes up one morning to find that his nose is missing, and he spends the rest of the opera trying to track it down and force it back into its rightful place on his face. At one point in the opera, Kovalyov spots his nose at church, but the nose refuses to talk to him because it has somehow managed to gain a bureaucratic rank that is above Kovalyov's own station. Eventually, the police capture the nose as it tries to board a coach out of town and beat it into submission. In the nose's first scene, a barber is horrified to find a nose baked into his loaf of bread. His wife immediately blames the situation on him and assures him that she would not hesitate to cooperate with the police to save her own skin. Musically, the scene shares many techniques with Wozzeck. Shostakovich's score is full of dissonance, eschewing traditional major-minor tonality, and fleeting bits of melody jump from the strings to the woodwinds to the brass in Shostakovich's shockingly unconventional orchestration. But the resemblance to Wozzeck is felt most strongly in Shostakovich's treatment of the singers, whose disjointed lines veer across the spectrum of singing and speech in a manner that immediately brings Berg's Sprechstimme technique to mind. To illustrate the similarities, let's listen to a couple of minutes from the opening scenes of each opera. 
to start, here's the first scene of The Nose from Valery Gergiev's recording with the Mariinsky State Opera. Let's compare what we just heard to the opening scene of Wozzeck from the Wiener Philharmoniker's recording conducted by Claudio Abbado. 
Intriguingly enough, there is a bit of plot overlap here, as this scene begins with Wozzeck acting as the captain's barber, giving him a shave. musical similarities between the two operas, there are also a number of novelties that set the nose apart from Wozzeck, and indeed from any other opera of its time. Among these is the interlude between scenes two and three of the first act, which Shostakovich scored exclusively for unpitched percussion instruments. It quickly became famous as one of the earliest works composed solely for percussion ensemble, a genre that would become a favorite of 20th and 21st century composers. Immediately following this percussion interlude is another one of the nose's novelties. As Kovalyov awakens to discover his nose has disappeared, he sings an aria composed entirely of grunts, moans, and other nonverbal sounds. Let's take a listen to this pair of musical novelties, the percussion interlude leading directly into scene three of Shostakovich's The Nose.
Shostakovich worked on the nose throughout 1927 and into 1928, but it wasn't premiered until 1930. This was the period when Stalin was ushering in the changes that would render the Soviet Union a truly totalitarian state. He inaugurated the first five-year plan, which would bring virtually every aspect of the Soviet economy under state control in 1928. It would take a few more years, however, for the government to exert complete control over Soviet musical life. The Soviet musical scene of the 1920s was dominated by two competing professional organizations of musicians. The Association of Contemporary Music, which comprised the old establishment, including conservatory professors, and the Russian Association of Proletarian Musicians, otherwise known as RAPM, which sought to throw out all the old traditions and build a new Soviet musical style that would be both revolutionary and utilitarian. In 1929, the Russian Association of Proletarian Musicians seemed to gain the upper hand when they were given control of the country's musical institutions as part of the first five-year plan, although this position of power would ultimately prove to be short-lived. While the nose seems, on the surface, like it would appeal to the RAPM, with its avant-garde musical techniques and lampooning of bourgeois society, the work failed to win over the association. Despite its rejection of old traditions, both societal and musical, the members of the association found Shostakovich's compositional style overly virtuosic, and thought the work would only appeal to an elite, sophisticated audience, not the proletariat. To put it another way, the nose lived up to the goal of creating revolutionary music, but it was not adequately utilitarian. Without the support of the RAPM, the initial production of the nose was short-lived, and the work would not be revived until the 1960s. The RAPM did not maintain its grip on Soviet musical life for very long. In 1932, the Central Committee dissolved all literary and artistic organizations, including RAPM, and replaced them with all-encompassing unions that would directly control the production and dissemination of art in every field. In the realm of music, this led to the creation of the Composers' Union, at first, Soviet composers believed the new union would lead to the reconciliation of members of the old guard with the revolutionaries and greater artistic freedom for all. Ultimately, however, the composers' union would come to exert a far greater level of control over the creation of new music in the Soviet Union than its predecessors ever could. The composers' union had the power to commission works arrange performances, and set up teaching engagements for its members. But what kind of music would it encourage its members to compose? That question was largely answered by the novelist Maxim Gorky, who, in 1932, at the first Congress of the Union of Soviet Writers, outlined a new artistic theory called socialist realism. The primary goal of artistic production, according to socialist realism, 
should be the truthful and historically concrete depiction of reality in its revolutionary development. Although the term was first applied to Soviet literature, socialist realism quickly became the dominant ideology in other artistic fields, including music. While the basic tenets of socialist realism are seemingly vague, it soon gave rise to a distinctive musical style that was, above all else, patriotic, straightforward, uplifting, and accessible. In some ways, it might be easier to define socialist realism in music by what it is not. It excluded any style that was deemed modernist, decadent, complex, or, the most dreaded term of abuse, formalist. Even though the RAPM had lost the battle for dominance in Soviet musical life to be replaced by the Composers' Union, in some ways it won the larger culture war, Many of its ideals were subsumed into the musical aesthetics of socialist realism. But in the early 1930s, this was not yet apparent to Shostakovich, who, like many other composers, initially mistook the foundation of the new union as a sign that the musical establishment would be more accepting of his style than the RAPM was. And so he embarked on a second operatic project, Lady Macbeth of the Mitsensk district. Little did he know that the fallout from his second opera would be considerably more disastrous than his first. Like the nose, Shostakovich adapted the plot of Lady Macbeth from a 19th century short story, in this case one written by the Russian author Nikolai Leskov. It valorizes the rather villainous acts of a woman, Katerina Ismailova, who struggles against the currents of pre-revolutionary Russian society. Caught in a dead-end marriage and tortured endlessly by her father-in-law, Katerina takes up with a worker on her husband's estate, kills her father-in-law and her husband in order to run away with her lover, gets sent to Siberia as punishment for her crimes, and, when her lover spurns her in Siberia for a new woman, pushes his new love interest into the river before diving in herself. In adapting Leskov's short story for his opera, Shostakovich took considerable liberties in order to portray Katerina as the sympathetic heroine of the opera, despite her many horrific acts. This reframing served a quintessentially Soviet narrative in which women, repressed and mistreated throughout the pre-Soviet era, would ultimately find liberation and redemption in the revolution. Indeed, Shostakovich originally intended to write a trilogy of operas that would glorify Russian womankind, first as rebel against the Tsarist order, then as revolutionary, and finally as the fully emancipated and productive heroine of Soviet society. Shostakovich used every musical technique available to him to render Katerina the most sympathetic character in the opera. He saved all the most lyrical musical lines in the opera for her, while the men around Katerina are accompanied by brute ostinatos and grotesque parodies of popular dances. Shostakovich also spared no detail in depicting the graphic physical and sexual violence 
in which Katerina is sometimes the victim and sometimes the aggressor. All of these extremes are on display in Act 1, Scene 3, perhaps the most infamous scene of the opera. First, we will hear Katerina's aria, The Foal Runs After the Filly, in which Katerina, alone in her bedroom, complains that, quote, No one will come to me. No one will put his hand round my waist. No one will press his lips to mine. And no one will stroke my white breast. No one will tire me out with his passionate embraces. Shostakovich sets Katerina's pity party very sympathetically, crafting a beautiful melodic line with a distinctly Slavic lilt and a lush string accompaniment. Toward the end of the aria, Katerina's melodic line becomes intertwined with a beautiful cello solo, which leads into an extended orchestral interlude that further develops the main musical ideas heard in the aria. Let's take a listen to Katerina's aria and the interlude with Galina Vishnevskaya as Katerina and Mstislav Rostropovich conducting the London Philharmonic.
little does Katerina know that she's about to get a lot more than she had bargained for. Immediately after her aria, the worker Sergei comes to visit Katerina in her bedroom, under the pretext that he would like to borrow a book. But as he stalls for time, it becomes evident that his main purpose in visiting Katerina is to seduce her, and he succeeds against her protestations. Shostakovich scores the moments leading up to Sergei's rape of Katerina with a level of intensity that makes Bernard Herrmann's music for the Hitchcock thriller Psycho look tame by comparison. As Katerina tries to escape Sergei's advances, their dialogue is punctured by a series of repeated dissonant chords that evoke the sound of Katerina's heart beating in her throat. When Sergei finally overpowers her, Shostakovich portrays Katerina's rape in the crudest fashion possible, with rhythmic ostinatos and trombone slides aplenty. It's no wonder a critic reviewing the opera in the New York Sun dubbed it, quote, pornophony. The moment of climax sounds like a resounding defeat rather than the consummation of an ideal love. And in a way, it is exactly that. This encounter with Sergei sets Katerina on an inescapable path that will ultimately end in a freezing river in Siberia.
You may already be thinking that Shostakovich's graphic depictions of sex and violence and his free use of dissonance would be enough on their own to run afoul of the Soviet Composers' Union. Indeed, it's hard to imagine an opera like this being performed in 1930s America, let alone the Soviet Union. In fact, these very qualities made Lady Macbeth hugely popular immediately following its Leningrad premiere in 1934, and it was widely hailed as the first major Soviet opera. Over the next two years, it was performed more than 200 times in both Moscow and Leningrad. But that all came to a halt literally overnight when Stalin attended a performance of Lady Macbeth at the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow on January 26, 1936. Stalin left before the end of the opera without stopping to congratulate Shostakovich, who was also in the audience. Two days later, an unsigned editorial with the title Muddle Instead of Music appeared in the Soviet Union's paper of record, Pravda. The article excoriated both the libretto and the music with a level of vitriol that needs to be heard to be believed. Quote, From the first minute, the listener is shocked by deliberate dissonance, by a confused stream of sound. Snatches of melody, the beginnings of a musical phrase, are drowned, emerge again, and disappear in a grinding and squealing roar. To follow this music is most difficult. To remember it, impossible. In another memorable line, the editorial hurls all the favorite insults of the Soviet regime in Shostakovich's direction. Quote, Here we have leftist confusion instead of natural human music. The power of good music to infect the masses has been sacrificed to a petty bourgeois formalist attempt to create originality through cheap clowning. It is a game of clever ingenuity that may end very badly. The danger of this trend to Soviet music is clear. Leftist distortion in opera stems from the same source as leftist distortion in painting, poetry, teaching, and science. Petty bourgeois innovations lead to a break with real art, real science, and real literature. Although the editorial was unsigned, the implications were clear. Shostakovich, the country's preeminent composer, had been reprimanded from the highest levels of the Soviet regime. Several of Shostakovich's friends revealed decades later that following the publication of the editorial, Shostakovich kept a packed suitcase in his apartment, fully expecting to be arrested or executed at any moment. While it may be hard for us to imagine today the fear that was struck into Shostakovich by a newspaper article, we have to remember the context. The editorial was published around the same time that Stalin was directing The First Great Purge, in which thousands of Soviet officials were murdered or disappeared seemingly overnight and often without reason or logic. And Shostakovich counted multiple acquaintances and friends among those who disappeared in the Great Purge. 
Shostakovich received the message behind the editorial loud and clear. Lady Macbeth was never again performed in the Soviet Union during Stalin's lifetime, and Shostakovich never attempted to compose another opera. Under the whims of socialist realism, anyone could transform from the Soviet Union's most promising operatic composer to persona non grata overnight. That was lecturer Dr. Naomi Perley discussing the musical landscape in the Soviet Union. Make sure to tune in next week when lecturer and my co-host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, presents part two of our Opera in the Soviet Era series. Please make sure to keep up with all things opera by following the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thanks so much for listening.